Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Well, believe it or not, this is part six of our Foreknowledge and Free Will series. Last time, Dr. Sean Cole introduced the Calvinist understanding of God's foreknowledge and the limitations on our freedom as a result of our fallen nature. This time, I asked Cole about unconditional election and how that compares to a lottery. After all, if God has no conditions by which he decides whom he elects to salvation, then isn't randomness all we have left? Also, I asked Cole to respond to a number of texts, including John 3.16, 1 Timothy 2.4, 2 Peter 3.9, and Luke 7.30. He does a great job representing the view and does so with a kind demeanor, and I certainly appreciate him for that. Here now is episode 308, Foreknowledge and Free Will, part 6, Sean Cole Defending Calvinism. Welcome back, Dr. Sean Cole. So, so appreciate you joining me today at Restitutio. Thanks for inviting me. I've enjoyed the first session. So let's explore some of the issues of fairness. We've been talking about, in our last session, foreknowledge and free will and compatibilism, sovereignty and uh, creaturely freedom, these kinds of concepts. And many of us who have, have studied Calvinism to some degree are aware of this, the the U in uh, the TULIP mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, acronym there. Let's get into that idea of unconditional election, or however we want sure. to form- formulate that. Um, so God already knows what He is going to do, uh, or right. maybe to say it more Calvinistically, He's already decreed it. So right. those people who maybe haven't been, haven't been born yet will be saved, um, and those who have not been elected. Uh, for salvation will be damned or will be uh, reprobate. So how does that square with the whole idea of, I don't know, justice or fairness? I mean, how does God make this decision, and how does it all work out from your point of view? Let's just talk first about the doctrine of election, because I've had some people over the years say, I don't believe in predestination, and don't talk to me about predestination. And what I have to tell them kindly is, you can't not believe in predestination because it's a biblical word. The question is not, do I believe in election? It's not, do I believe in predestination? The question is, which view do you hold? Or what's the basis for God's election? And obviously you've got the traditional Arminian foreknowledge view, that the reason some are not chosen is because God foresaw that they would not choose. Right. And so God lets them use their free will to reject. So in that in that scenario, God peeks into the future and sees what somebody would do if they were presented with the gospel. Is Correct. That, okay. Yeah. So like for so for example, like Sally's, it's 1984 and Sally's at youth camp and it's the last night and the pastor's preaching the gospel with passion and she gets under conviction and she goes down to the altar and she asks Jesus into her heart on July 5th, 1984. Well, in eternity past, God looked down. And saw that moment in time that Sally would choose Jesus. And based upon what God saw, I like to use the term, he ratifies her decision. Mm-hmm. He puts his stamp of approval on what he sees, and therefore he elects her. If God were to look down the corridors of time and never see Sally ever using her free will to trust Christ, um, God 
basically just sees that and she she's made the choice in time to never to never get saved. Yeah, you know what? I I think I had mixed categories between a Molinist view and an Arminian traditional view. Uh, yeah. Where whereas the Molinist view is is looking at what somebody would do in this circumstance. So rather than looking at a future event where somebody does in fact believe the gospel and repent. In a Molinist view, it's like, okay, would they, if they did, it's sort of like a contrafactual right. scenario, right. but the right. Arminian is not really doing that. With the Arminian, it's more of a, uh, oh. almost like a paradox, like a feedback loop, like God looks ahead to see what the person did and then elects them on the basis of what had already they had already done, even though it's future. Right. I don't know. I'm I'm getting my brain tied in knots here. <laughs> no, you're no, you're correct. I mean, I and to be fairness to the Armenian view, I I don't know if it's actually I don't necessarily call it election or predestination. I call it more ratification. Okay. God, right. God ratifies the choice that He sees by electing them, but ultimately the person in the driver's seat is the sinner choosing Christ. God sees that. God God elects them based upon. It's called conditional. It's based upon the conditions they met. They met the conditions of repentance and faith, and because they met those conditions that were required, God elected them based upon meeting those conditions. That's why it's that's why the traditional Arminian view is called conditional election. Okay. Because they they met the conditions of repentance and faith required for God to elect. All right. So let's talk about unconditional election. Yeah, unconditional election would be there are no conditions that a sinner has to meet in order for God to elect them. God doesn't have to look down and see a person using their free will to trust in Christ because in our view, nobody would ever do that because all are dead in sin and lack the ability to do that. So God would be looking forever to see somebody choosing him unless he first took the initiative to choose them. So it's unconditional in the sense that that there's no conditions that a sinner has to meet in order for God to choose them. So then the question comes, okay, what's the basis for God choosing them right, if there's no right. conditions? Because he doesn't choose well, everyone. I mean, I think everybody right. pretty much agrees with that, except for right. the universalists, and there, there sure. are very few of them. Right. So the question becomes, okay, why why are some chosen and, and why are some not? The, the, the Arminian answer is some are chosen and some are not because some used, used their free will and others did not, and God looked down and saw who would and wouldn't and chose based upon that. The Calvinist view is that everybody starts at the starting point of being fallen in Adam, undeserving, deserving God's wrath, deserving hell. God does not owe them any type of salvation. So therefore, for God to choose some, and not a small number, because Revelation tells us it's a number that no man can count, that it's a great multitude— uh-huh. We don't know. We don't know the exact number. We know. We know according to our confessions, it's a fixed fixed number. But God chooses a great number based upon His sovereign will alone, and the rest He leaves or passes by. And so the question is: Okay, if God chooses some, then by logic, there are some that God doesn't choose. Okay, why doesn't God choose them? How does that happen? That's the questions that we, we wrestle with in the different views. All three, all the views still have those who aren't saved. Right. The issue becomes why. And so the, the traditional, um, I guess I would say, infralapsarian, and I don't want to be throwing down words that are Calvinistic that a lot of maybe your listeners don't understand. Well, I think it's fine just so long as you define them so that people yeah. know yeah. what we're talking Look, about. What our view is, is that 
God actively elects and predestines a group of people to be saved. The rest that he doesn't actively elect to be saved, he simply passes by or leaves them in their state of sin. And as a result of them being left in their sin, there is no provision for them, and they end up going to hell based upon being, what we would say, passed over. Okay. Some people look at the issue of equal ultimacy in the sense that um, God is equally actively predestinating his elect, and in the same way, he's actively working in the non-elect to make sure they never come to Christ, and that, that God is sending them to hell when they would want to come to heaven but he's just, you know, actively working in the non-elect the same way he's working in the elect. And would you call that superlapsarian, the, um, the double predestination idea? No, no, I would call that equal ultimacy. Um, supra and infra is more just the order of the decrees that God made before the foundation of the world and how how that's understood. Um, it's it's really called equal ultimacy in the sense that. And, and you're saying you don't affirm this. I don't affirm equal ultimacy. Okay. Um, because let me just kind of give you a definition is that it's the idea that before time, God contemplates human beings as yet unfallen and morally neutral, and then decides to either infuse or work evil into them in order to justly punish them. In other words, God is actively working unrighteousness in the reprobate the same way he's working righteousness in the elect. Wow. And, and that's not the doctrine of that's not the historic reformed doctrine of predestination. That's that's called um, equal ultimacy, where God is equally doing the same things in the elect that He's doing. And they, and some people go to Pharaoh, you know, God hardening Pharaoh's heart, um, which that's a secondary topic to talk about. But the historic reform view is that in God's predestinating act. He viewed or um, contemplated humans in light of their actually being fallen in Adam and regarded them as already sinful. And so what the infralapsarian view would say is that God doesn't have to work in the non-elect sin. They already have sin. So, So let me put it this way. All human beings are born into this world under God's wrath. They're born inheriting a sin nature from Adam. They're born deserving hell. They're born without grace. Okay. Okay. That's the starting point for every single person who's born. Now, for those who, whom God had chosen before time to be saved, that decree of election was made before time, according to Ephesians 1. Those and only those, God will work in time to ensure that they come to faith. So they will be sovereignly regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Jesus died specifically for them. God will work actively by sending Jesus to die for them, actively by sending the Holy Spirit to open their eyes, actively replacing their heart of stone with the heart of flesh, actively doing all of these things to overcome that original sin, that deadness, that moral inability, and he will bring them to life only those whom he chose before the foundation of the world. Now, as I understand it, that's not based on how somebody responds to the gospel from their own desire. No. It's not based on what somebody who was 
capable of responding would do in that scenario. It's based on something else in God's inscrutable right. will, right. Yeah, right. sovereign yeah. will. Do right. You, that's why it's that's why it's called unconditional election. There's no conditions. There's there's nothing in the in the center that they did to either draw out God's election or respond to that. God, God, Ephesians 1 tells us that God did it according to the counsel of his will or according to the pleasure of his will. Um, now, what that means, God did it because he wanted to do it. I don't know. I mean, we can't say that. What, what we can say about election is God elected because he wanted to. What we cannot say about election is that God did it because somehow people were better, they were more spiritual, they were more deserving, they had more spiritual um, potential. There was nothing in the human that caused God to elect them. It was simply his good pleasure to do so. How is that different from a lottery, for example? You know, sometimes people are trying to get into the United States. There's an immigration lottery, and some people's names are chosen, and then they just get in. It's not based on how good they would be for this country or what they've done in their own country. Sure. Uh, but, is okay, that so, really, is, is that an apt analogy well, or where, where's the no, flaw there? The flaw there is, okay, how does a, how does a, how does a lottery work? It's just Who's random. A, it's a random lottery yeah. that has no, pur- I'm not gonna say it has no purpose. It's, it's, it's luck. It's the luck of the draw. There's no purpose. There's no reason or rhyme. It just happens to happen based upon the way that the, the ping pong ball or however they do it tends to happen. What we would say is that God has a definite purpose in who he chooses. He just doesn't choose to tell us that purpose. All right. So from his perspective, it's not random. It's No, not at it's all. De- it's deliberate. From our perspective, it is random because you're, you've already said that there's nothing in us that right. makes it more likely for this person or that person. I mean, we all know people that are better natured and, you know, other sure. people that are difficult. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. And, uh, sure. You know, like the, you're saying it's not based on that. Right. It's not based on temperament. It's not even based on openness. It's, it's not even, it, it, yeah. So just because we don't know, here's what I would say. God never does anything without a purpose. God never does anything randomly like a lottery God always, because he's God and he's a God of order and he's a God of holiness, he does everything with a purpose. Now, he doesn't have to share that purpose with us, but there is a purpose. So what we perceive as arbitrary or random or capricious or whatever adjective you want to use, from our perspective, it seems that way because we're not the one making the decision. God's the one making the decision and he chooses not to tell us exactly why. It's just according to the pleasure of his good will is what Ephesians tells us. Right, and we also know that we can't do anything to make him pick us. Correct. Or individually, right. Correct, correct. So that's why I was saying, from the from the perspective of a person, it feels like a lottery, but it's, sure. it's not, that's, that analogy fails because on the choosing side, it's not random. Correct. Okay. Correct. On God's side, there's order and there's purpose and there's, and, and there's a will there. Okay. Okay, so let's go back to the actively. Okay, so those that God doesn't choose, God doesn't have to actively do anything in them. They're already born spiritually dead. They're already born incapable of coming to him. They're already born in their sins. God doesn't have to do anything. He just simply has to pass them over or not actively do anything in them to overcome that deadness. And so God just, because they weren't elect before the foundation of the world, God just leaves them to what they want to do. And what they do, 
without intervening. And then they go to hell based upon their personal sin and because God didn't choose them. Now, the objective is like, that's not fair. Why, why, why does God choose some and not choose others? It doesn't seem fair. The question becomes, um, does God have to be fair? Is God obligated to be fair? Is God obligated to save anybody? We start from the perspective that somehow God owes us or somehow we deserve or somehow God has to be um, equal in his dispensing of grace where that's just really not the place the Bible starts. It's a place we start in our human thinking that, you know, our human thinking of fairness that everybody needs to have a shot, whereas the Bible says, no, God views everybody as dead in sin and fallen in Adam and is not obligated to save anybody. And for him to choose to save some does not mean that he's a God of um, unfairness. He's actually showing mercy to those that would otherwise receive justice. Yeah, I got you. So let's think of a, uh, a married couple, one spouse commits adultery and that gives grounds to the other spouse to divorce that person. So if that person chooses not to divorce them, uh, but to keep that spouse, that would be an act of just unimaginable mercy and grace in that scenario. Sure. Nobody would say, oh, well, because that person was already under guilt, that person was already under the the consequence of the sin— that they had already broken that relationship, that that covenant marriage relationship. Nobody's going to condemn the victim spouse in this scenario for going through the do- divorce, whether Christian or non-Christian. Is that a fair analogy? You know, because so like you, the human race is already is already under sin to start with, so right. there is no sense of obligation or equal fairness to all because there's already been guilt in as I guess a corporate sense that is right. that is born by every person. Yeah, let me give you kind of some statements that may help understand kind of what we would say about this whole issue of election and reprobation. So, we would believe that God has an eternal and immutable decree in that the decree was made before time and it's immutable in that it it can't change. It's something that when God had made it it stands. It can't be altered. And then obviously God created the universe for his glory. And then God decreed, we would say God actually decreed the fall of Adam as our federal head, as well as original sin. Not that God just allowed it or permitted it, but that God decreed that Adam would fall. And God's decree views all people as fallen in Adam where we are sinners by nature because of what we inherited from Adam and by our actual individual choices as well. And so God predestined individual sinners to salvation because we were not holy and blameless. God saw us fallen in Adam, but he predestined us to be saved. The others God left over or passed over, those individual sinners that inherited sin from Adam and did not intervene in their salvation to give them grace, but they will receive the punishment for their sins. God has exhaustive foreknowledge. He either saw or foresaw, ordained who would and who would not receive Christ. So therefore, creating or giving birth to these people he knew would reject Christ means that he created them anyway, knowing they would never come to faith and be in hell. 
because sometimes the question people ask is, well, why did God allow, you know, if, if, if God's got it all worked out, it seems cruel to have people be born. Right, yeah. Knowing that they're going to go to hell. But I would have to say, if you believe in foreknowledge, unless you're an open theist, and you believe God has foreknowledge of what people are going to do, he knew that those people were never going to come to faith in him. And he let them be created anyway, knowing that they would never have faith in him and that they would go to hell. So he either could have not had them been born, or he could have done something in them to make them come to faith in Christ. I see. But does that make sense? Yeah. All right, so let's let's take a look at some text, some pushback here, and, and hear you sure. exegete them. First off, John 3.16, the, the most famous verse in the Bible, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I mean, that word whoever there uh, doesn't sound like God has chosen ahead of time which ones are going to believe in him. It sounds more like anybody's got a shot at this. How would you read John 3.16? Well, first of all, I would say that John 3.16 does not give us any information about election or predestination. It's a promise or a statement that all the believing ones— now, in our English translations, we have um, whoever believes, and there's an assumption that whoever believes— is that that's open for whoever wants to believe, has the option. So what's read into that whoever believes is a category that there must be free choice because it's open to whoever wants to believe, the choice is there. I think it's just a a statement of fact that the ones who believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. Um, It's basically a participle, all the believing ones, those that are believing in him. So the promise is whoever believes in Jesus— will not perish but have eternal life. So that passage of Scripture doesn't answer the question about election. It basically gives a promise that if you believe, whoever is the one that believes in him will have eternal life and not perish. The question behind the question is, okay, how does one come to believe? Why does a person believe? So we would say, based upon all of, especially the Gospel of John, those that actually do believe or come to Christ are the ones that the Father gave to Jesus Because in John 6, all the Father gives me will come to me, and those who come to me I will never cast out but raise them up on the last day. So we would say that those that believe in Jesus are the ones that the Father gave to Jesus before time, and that they have the promise that when they believe, they'll have eternal life. Okay, So, so you're taking it as a general principle. I don't know if I'm taking it as general principle as a statement of it's an indicative statement. It's not, it's not telling, it's not giving you information one way or the other about election. Um, that whoever is an English way to make the verse sound more smooth, because technically, if you were to, to translate in that original Greek, it would be for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that all the believing ones in Him, all the ones that are believing, right? Because it's a pos plus a articular participle. Yeah, yeah, the ones that are believing. And so it's basically just a statement of fact that if the ones that are believing in Jesus, they will not perish but have eternal life. The whoever believes, there's an imported assumption or inference that, oh, whoever must mean that that's open to whoever wants to choose. Right, because that's the way way we use the word whoever in our just regular everyday usage. Uh, You say, well, uh, who is this for? And somebody says, it's for whoever. That means right. that anybody could freely choose to 
avail themselves right. of that. Right. And we're, you're saying that sim- that's not even an accurate translation. Um, it, not that it's necessarily it, wrong, but it's just not a literal translation. It's it, yeah, it's not wrong. It just makes it flow better. But there's there's an imp- yeah. Basically, the way that the, it's that's translated, or the way that it's worded in the original Greek text is it's basically those that believe. It's, so it's a promise or a statement of fact that the ones that are believing, they're not going to perish but have eternal life. Okay. We come to our English translation and we we bring the baggage of whosoever. Right. Or whoever, and we automatically think, okay, that must mean choice, that it's open for all. Whoever wants to make the choice, whoever wants to get in can do it, that you can believe how, you know, you have the libertarian free will to believe. I don't think this verse gives ammunition to either an Arminian or a Calvinist. I think it's just a statement of a promise that if you're believing in Jesus, you're not going to have, you know, hell, you're going to have eternal life. The question is, why did you believe? Mm-hmm. Right, so that's backing it up to the, the, the bigger picture here. Yeah, why did you believe? Did you believe because God chose you and he sovereignly regenerated you and drew you to himself and gave you the faith to believe? Or did you believe because when presented with the gospel, you had libertarian free will and you chose freely to believe? Mm-hmm. That's really the question. All right, all right, very good. First uh, Timothy chapter 2 is a perennial text brought up on this, this kind of subject of sure. election. And mm-hmm. uh, also atonement, right? But uh, sure. it's it reads First Timothy two three. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So those two alls there, the one in verse four desires all people to be saved, and then. In verse 6, a ransom for all. Um, how would you uh, interpret those? Yeah, can we spend some time on this text? Yeah, is yeah, that, sure. Okay, okay. Because I think we have to go back up to, to verse 1 where actually Paul starts the context. Um, because verses 1 and 2 are very, very important to understanding those alls that are in verses 4 and 6. So, so do you mind if I read verses 1 and 2? Please do. Okay. First of all, then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing. Those are the things that you read. Okay, so the question is, okay, when Paul here uses all people, here's the, the, the cheesy question, does all mean all? So when Paul says, I want you to pray for all people, prayers, intercessions, supplications, I want you to make those for all people. Okay, does that mean all people without exception everywhere in Ephesus or that we're just supposed to get out and we're just supposed to pray indiscriminately for all people everywhere? Or does Paul qualify that all people in verse 2 by giving a specificity? Okay, he says, no, let me specify that. Kings those who are in high position. So the way I would understand that is that he's talking there about, when he uses the word all, he's talking about types or kinds or classes of people. So there's two ways in which the word all can be interpreted depending on how you understand, I guess, your theology. All can mean all without exception. That means every single, literally every single man, woman, boy, girl who has lived and ever will live every single person, or all can mean all without distinction, meaning all types of people. 
Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, man, woman, all kinds, all types of people. And so I think that exegetically here, Paul is saying, I want you to be praying for all types of people. And so when you get to verse 4, okay, we've got the the subject of praying for all types of people. We get to verse 4 and then starts talking about salvation. God wants all people. Okay, well, so there's two, there's two ways you can interpret that. So let me be fair and give the Arminian or the non-Calvinistic interpretation. This would be God wants all people without exception by their free will to be saved. Okay, would, would you agree with that? Yeah. Okay. So in this view, if God wants all people by their free will to be saved— the question then becomes, does God desire something that invariably will not happen? So if God desires all people to be saved, are all people saved? No. Okay. So you've got to ask the question then, does God want all people to be saved? The assumption is that God wants something or God desires something, but yet it doesn't happen. Because mm-hmm. all people aren't saved. So then the question becomes, okay, why aren't all people saved? If God wants something to happen and it doesn't happen, then it sounds like could be that God is being frustrated and desiring something that doesn't come to fruition. So then the question becomes, okay, then why does God desire all people to be saved and yet not all people are saved? I would say the Arminian answer would be, okay, God values libertarian free will that he desires something he knows won't happen because he allows people to have free will to either accept or reject Jesus in the gospel. Mm -hmm. So there must be something out there that's greater than God's sovereign will to save, and that is libertarian freedom to allow people to choose to reject him. Because if God wants something to happen and it doesn't happen, it sounds like there's there's some type of limitation or some type of thing happening that God wants that doesn't actually happen. So God wants people to be saved. He really wants them to be saved. And he wants all people to be saved without exception. But if that doesn't happen, there must be something there that prevented God's will from being accomplished, and that something is libertarian free will. Yeah. Okay. Now, the question I would have is the interpretation number two is that the reform view, the way I would understand it is God's desire or God's will or God's wish or what what God wants is always in harmony with his eternal decree. And his eternal decree is to save all men without distinction. So we would see the all there is not all people indiscriminately Um, without exception, every single person that ever lived, but that God's desire is that all types, all kinds, all classes of people to be saved, and that they actually will be saved, and that they will come to faith because nothing can thwart God's sovereign will. So there's a theological problem in the interpretation one. So if God desires or wants all people to be saved without exception— then why are not all people saved? If it's God's will for something to happen, 
then what God wills does not happen because the Bible teaches in all people saved. So therefore something is thwarting God's will from happening. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the question I have is if God wills something to happen from our perspective, will it happen or not? If not, what is it that prevents his will from happening? People's decision. People's decision. Right. Okay. I mean, that's, it's that's, like, you know, with, with your kids, you desire that they would, they would clean their room, but they don't decide to clean their room, then the room is not clean. Now you got to deal with the consequences of that, right? Right. So I would say that the way I understand that all there is that God wills or God desires all kinds or classes or types of people without distinction to be saved. And they, in fact, will be saved because God chose them before the foundation of the world. Now, one passage of Scripture that kind of you can add to this to kind of bring some support is Revelation 5.9. They sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now, if you look carefully at the wording there, the new song that they're saying, does it say Jesus ransomed every single person? Or does it say you ransomed people for God from, that the Greek preposition out, out of, ek, mm-hmm. from every tribe, language, people, and nation? So, yes, God saved all types of people people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Jesus was a ransom for all types and kinds of people. But does that mean that God's desire is that every single person is saved and that Jesus died for every single person who ever lived on the planet? Um, The all language there, we would say, is all without distinction. Now, here's where this passage of Scripture gets interesting because it talks about a ransom where Jesus was a ransom for all. Okay, that brings us the question here. Who is the all that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for? Okay, so question number one. If if Jesus was a little literal ransom on the cross, then did his death make salvation possible? Or did it actually ransom or purchase a particular people? That's, That's a limited atonement question, which I think is related to the election question. Number two, how has the word all been used contextually up to this point in this passage? So consistently you could say all the way down through that passage when he's using all, he's, he's keeping that same, that same idea. But here's the big one. If Jesus is the mediator, the one mediator between God and man, the question becomes, is he a mediator or is he interceding for those in hell? In other words, for whom does Jesus act as a mediator? Is he a mediator for all people? Because if he's a mediator for all people, that means there's actually people that die and never hear Jesus that go to hell that Jesus is the mediator for. But that doesn't make any sense related to the whole idea of Christ's intercessory work as the high priest and also the idea of, of him dying in the place of particular sinners. So let me stop there and see if you have any questions or, or pushback on that. What I'm hearing you say is that the all here in verse 4 and verse 6 is uh, is not talking about all without distinction. It's talking about all different kinds, a la Revelation 5-9, uh, where it says every tribe, nation, and language. 
and, and that you're you're drawing strength from the middle verse in that sandwich, verse five, the idea of a mediator, that there yeah. would be no use, I guess, to mediate for the lost, right? So that would almost like set up this whole thing as as being interpreted as all with distinction as opposed to all without exception. Correct. And here's the big question that I think a lot of Arminians and non-Calvinists have to answer or wrestle with. And it's and I don't often see it in the writings or in in, in, the, in the in the literature or things that I see out there. And that is how do you guys or I'm not putting you in that camp because I think you said you were um, not a non-Calvinist. The question is, what is your understanding or how do you view the high priestly work of Jesus as the mediator, as the intercessor, and how does that tie into and relate to his work as? the atonement. Like, so how does the atonement and Christ intercessory work? How does that work together? How his high priestly function? I think there's a, there's a, a, a huge weakness in non-Calvinistic um, theology about, about the intercessory work of Christ along with his atonement. I'm not saying you have to answer that now. I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there. Well, I just throw, throw it out a little response to, um, I, I, I think many of us would conceive of it as corporate, that he is the mediator between God and humanity, uh, as a group, he he goes between. Now that doesn't mean that every human is going to take advantage of that opportunity, that possibility. Just like, say, for example, a basketball team that gets in a fight is fined by the league. Then um, maybe a, a star player on that team who's very wealthy agrees to pay the fine for everyone. Some people maybe will say, no, I'm going to pay my own fine. I'm not taking advantage of this this opportunity of this person willing to pay my fine for me. I'm going to pay my own. Then that mediator would still be there, but it would not be of any effect for that person who chose not to take advantage. So basically in that view, the human responsibility or the human will is the determiner of, of how Christ is going to mediate. It's it's a potential. It's It's available. But you have to avail yourself of that opportunity. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would agree with the word how there. It's it's that Christ has done this mediation. He is the go-between. He has accomplished, I mean, especially from where we sit today, he has accomplished on the cross the ransom for us all. But whether or not that is of any benefit to me individually, it depends on if I accept that. If I right. count myself as as part of his his group, sure. In our view, would be that actually when Christ died on the cross, those who were elect were crucified with him, were reunited with him there, and their sins were particularly paid for. Not and, and, that, and not a potential. He died to make it possible if you use your free will down the road to accept it, but that it actually was a literal ransom that actually paid for sins. And that if a person's sins were actually paid for, and even though they never availed themselves of it, then why would they suffer in hell for something that was paid for? Um, and that's the whole limited atonement discussion. That's probably a totally different discussion for for another day. Yeah. Well, I mean, but we don't that, we don't want to go too far into it because sure, we do have sure, um, sure, uh, sure. a couple of other quick texts to sure. look at. But sure. uh, let's let's move on to Second Peter three nine, uh, another sure. verse. I'm sure you are, you know, people have brought up to you in the past. And sure. uh, that you've thought about a good deal. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Um, and so here it's, it's talking about God's desire. He does not wish that any should perish. Uh, so on, on Calvinism, then, this seems to have some sort of tension with the idea that he does ordain that some sh- should perish and that some should be saved. How do you look at this one? Well, I think we need to understand, again, what is that word, any? How, does that, how is that defined? Not wishing that any should perish. Who's the identity of that any? Um, because think about the text. Let's just look at verse 9 for a moment. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Patient towards you. So who's Peter talking to? He's, he's, he's talking to his audience. So who is God patient with in delaying the second coming? He's patient toward you. In the immediate context of the letter, Peter has addressed his audience back up in verse 1 of 2 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 8 as beloved. And then actually at the very beginning of the, of the chapter, Peter addresses those who have been who obtained a faith of equal standing with, with Christ Jesus. And so contextually, what I think is, is that Peter is saying that God is patient toward you. Who's he patient toward? His people, believers, those whom he's called his own, the beloved, not wishing that any, tying back to you, not any of his elect should perish, but come to faith in Christ. Um, so I would just look there and say that contextually, the any doesn't mean every and all person who's ever lived. The any is limited to the you that he's talking about, the, the, the entirety of the elect group of people that God has chosen. Okay, so not just, not just any in general, but any of you. And yeah, you any. are the people that this epistle is addressing, which we right. could easily figure that out right from the the introduction these are people that believe in Jesus right it says those who have obtained this is second peter 1 1 those who have right. obtained a faith of equal standing with ours uh, so I mean these are not these are not unbelievers these are believers and so that any refers to any of you who are reading this letter yeah but that's not even a possibility on your I mean I know this is bringing in perseverance of the sure. saints but if that's not even a possibility what's the point in talking about it If he doesn't if it's not possible that any of you believers should perish then what's the point in saying he doesn't want you to perish But that all should reach repentance Yeah Well and I if, would say and they would have already reached repentance if they're Believers. No, I don't think. No, I don't think he's necessarily talking about the believers directly. I mean, he's def- definitely talking about the, his original audience as believers. But I also think that it's a general statement to all of God's people that will, in time, re- reach repentance. All right. So not necessarily these particular people that are reading this letter, but any of the elect. Yeah. Uh, past, present, and future. Yeah, and and let's talk about repentance, because in our view, repentance is a gift that God gives, and he only gives that to his elect. So a person can't repent and believe without God first granting them the repentance and faith to believe. 
So it's still limited to only those that God's going to grant repentance to. Okay, okay. So we would say that, and I think in the non-Calvinist view, there's an assumption that anybody can repent based upon choosing to repent. Right. Whereas we would say repentance is a gift that God gives in regeneration to the elect that will enable them to repent. Yeah, I think a good synergist response would be something like, nobody can repent apart from God's grace, um, but that it it requires not only God's grace, but also that person's free choice to right. have this thing occur. So um, we, try, sure. we try to have our cake and eat it too, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, and there's different views of, like, what, like different views of prevenient grace, because... Right, right. It's in the circles I run into. We I don't necessarily deal with Arminians. I deal with traditional Southern Baptists like Leighton Flowers, who, who, de, who deny total inability and, and have a different view of prevenient grace than I, a, a classical Arminian would. Right. And so that makes it a little bit interesting to kind of even get the different views out there. Yeah. All right. Well, let, let's look at one more text. Uh, we're just winding down here. Sure. Uh, sure. Appreciate you being a good sport here. I realize that uh, oh. I'm. I'm throwing stuff at you, and uh, you're not allowed to throw stuff at me, but that's the, <laughs> oh, that's... the prerogative of the host, I suppose. Yeah, uh... you can do whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> so this last one here is uh, Luke 7.30, and it's kind of in the middle of a sentence here. I'll just back up to 29, Luke 7.29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him namely John the Baptist. So um, this is kind of a parenthetical statement as the uh, ESV has it here. And uh, what it's expressing is this idea that the Pharisees and the lawyers, that, that God wanted them to be baptized by John. God wanted the leaders of Israel to accept the preparation that he was putting forward before the coming of Christ, uh, but they rejected it. They went against what God wanted for them. So, uh, have you have you wrestled with this text much? Has it come up in uh, I, discussions? I haven't wrestled with it, but but I, ha- I haven't really wrestled with it. But what I would say here, from a from a Calvinistic perspective, this is where we would see a distinction between the prescriptive will and the sovereign will of God. Where we we have we have two wills of God that we understand the way the Bible teaches, and we would probably look at this and say the purpose of God for them to be baptized was God's revealed will. That John the Baptist came preaching a gospel of repentance. That was God's revealed will to the Jews to get prepared for the coming Messiah. They were supposed to do it. That was very clear from John's preaching. And they rejected the revealed will of God to be baptized when it was clearly in front of them. Um, and is that the descriptive or the prescriptive or what was that's the term? A, yeah, that would be the, that would be the prescriptive or the reveal. Like, so let me let me define terms. The revealed prescriptive will of God, His will of command. This is what God commands. So anything that you see God commanding, when John the Baptist comes saying, "Repent and be baptized, you brood of vipers," God's revealing His will to them right then and there. It's not secret. It's not sovereign. It's not behind the scenes. It's clearly revealed either through preaching or written. And so God gives his written, revealed will that we're responsible to follow, i.e. the Ten Commandments, all the precepts in the Bible. On the other hand, there's God's sovereign will or his secret will that 
he is working out in his sovereignty that he decreed before time that we're not aware of and that we are not privy to that he's working out. And so what I'm understanding you saying this is that these guys thwarted the purpose of God or somehow defied God's will by using their free will. Is that the way I'm understanding you taking that passage? Yeah, I, what I'm taking it as is that they rejected the purpose of God for themselves. So God's purpose for them in sending John the Baptist is that they would believe and repent and go through baptism in preparation for the coming of Christ, and they rejected that purpose that God had for them and, and all of the people that, it, I don't think it would just be the Pharisees and the lawyers, sure. but all the people that were in that time and that place. Sure. Yeah, and we would say that people do that all the time. People reject the revealed will of God all the time. God gives his Ten Commandments. God has his word. People reject that all the time. Um, but that's different than actually thwarting God's sovereign purpose that he ordained to happen before the foundation of the world. Does okay. that make sense? Well, it helps me to understand you know, a key component of the inner workings of this whole, this whole right. mindset. So I appreciate you bringing up that distinction. Yeah. I hadn't yeah, heard of have- that before. Yeah, we have two categories that may be helpful for your listeners that we that we operate in. The secret will of God that we don't know. And let me give you a perfect example. So let me give you a text where this actually comes from. This comes from Deuteronomy 29, 29. This passage of Scripture illustrates both of these concepts in one passage. So it says, Deuteronomy 29, 29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Okay, stop right there. I'll read the rest of the passage in just a moment. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are some secret things that only God keeps to himself. He doesn't share them with us. He's not under obligation to share them with us. They're secret sovereign things. They're his divine ordained decree that he has, that he keeps to himself, that he's working out behind the scenes that we're never privy to. Okay. We're not, we're not responsible for obeying God's secret things. How, how could you be accountable for obeying God's secret sovereign will when it's secret to you? So you're not accountable to that. God's working it out behind the scenes, and he's going he's gonna to accomplish it, but you, you're not aware of it. You're not responsible for it, even though it's going to happen. You can't stop it. All right, rest of the sentence. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There are things that God has revealed to us, particularly here in the Old Testament, the law, written for them to know in plain language and plain writing what God expects. That's what they're accountable for is what God has clearly told them to do. So there is a revealed written will of command that God clearly tells us this is what you're supposed to do that you're not in the dark. And people violate that all the time. Just look at the Ten Commandments, look at any law of God, people are going to violate his will of command. But the secret things, the will of decree, the sovereign will that God's working behind the scenes our view is that that's always going to be worked out meticulously, and nobody can thwart that purpose of God that he's working out. I see. So we have those two categories. Okay. All right. So you, uh, you've, you've passed the, uh, <laughs> the gauntlet. <laughs> I'm sure uh, uh, an experienced debater would, would have other verses to, to bring up uh, to you on this, and I'm sure you would have a whole slew of texts that uh, you could bring in response but uh, I, I just want to say that I am really thankful for your kind demeanor. 
and uh, you know you're not you're not closing yourself off from dialogue with uh, people that are are coming from different point of view, and I think that you're to be commended for that. And you you have a, a good mix of confidence and humility. You're not uh, like lifted up and arrogant, and you're like, oh, Sean, you're such an idiot. Um, and, uh, you're not also saying, oh, I don't know anything, you know, just trying my best here. You know, I mean, I I think you have a good mix there. So let's, uh, let me just end with this. What other reading or resources would you recommend on this subject? Let me give you two books on compatibilism. The, the two that I think are probably the best one's an older one. It's, it's by D.A. Carson. It's called divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And it addresses this particular issue that we started on the first podcast of divine Sovereignty and Human Responsibility. A newer one is by a French author, Guillaume Bignon, and you're going to have to figure out how to spell that. It's B-I-G-N-O-N. It's called Excusing Sinners and Blaming God. It's a really good new book that really deals philosophically and scripturally with the whole issue of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. So those are two two good books on compatibilism. Uh, Let me give you the four best books on Calvinism that I've found that you may want to read. For your listeners, uh, Lorraine Bettner's The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination is a classic. Um, For those that may be more in the Baptist world or Southern Baptist Calvinists, whomever he wills, uh, these are essays on TULIP or on the five points of Calvinism from Southern Baptist Calvinists who have responded to Southern Baptist traditionalists. So it's it's a pretty good overview of the doctrines of grace. An older book, but I think is a really good one, it's by R.K. McGregor Wright. It's called No Place for Sovereignty, What's Wrong with Free Will Theism? No Place for Sovereignty, What's Wrong with Free Will Theism? And then Chosen for Life by Sam Storms is a good, accessible. And then just to end, I'd say everyone should read Luther's The Bondage of the Will at least once, just to get a, a laugh classic. out of it. <laughs> yeah, just, it'll make you laugh the way the way he treats Erasmus and some of the ways that he he makes fun of him and denigrates him. I wouldn't I wouldn't suggest you do that to your debate de- uh, opponent today, but it actually is kind of humorous. So. Uh-huh. Yeah, I remember reading excerpts from that in church history class and uh, remarking at uh, Luther's very colorful demeanor. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty crass actually. It's pretty, it's pretty funny. So, all right. Well, thanks so much, Sean. I appreciate you taking the time today. It's been uh, well, it's been great. I, yeah. I appreciate it too, Sean, and, and I and I just want to say thank you for letting me be on your program, and um, I hope it's been edifying. I've, I've tried to just lay out a case of what we believe without being accusatory or trying to, to say that we're better. I'm just trying to help your audience to know where we come from so they can weigh our view versus the other views that you've um, expressed on here. So hopefully that's been helpful. And, and if people want to get in touch with you, how would they, how would they do that? Yeah, um, a couple of things. I have a podcast called Understanding Christianity. Um, you can get that on any of the uh, you know, Apple podcast or whatever, understanding Christianity. Um, you can go to seancole.net is my website. And then I also have a book, um, that came out back in the spring called your identity and the Trinity, understanding God's grace in the gospel. Um, it is not necessarily a Calvinistic book, even though it has that flavor. It's more on how do we understand each person of the Trinity and how, each of those persons has done a work in our lives to help us understand who we are um, in the gospel and how we struggle with sin and how we grow in Christ and how that helps us have assurance of salvation. And you can get that on Amazon and other places. All right. I'll be sure to put those links in the show notes for this episode. And uh, thanks for your time. Well, thank you. I appreciate it.
Well, this concludes our interview, and I want to let you know that I put a bunch of links in the show notes for this episode, including the six books that Dr. Cole mentioned. Uh, the first two are on compatibilism, which is more germane to our subject, and the others are on Calvinism in general. So you could take a look at that. Also, check out more about Sean Cole at his website, seancole.net, S-E-A-N-C-O-L-E dot N-E-T. And you can also get his podcast, Understanding Christianity, uh, which is linked on his, his own website. Well, that's it for this series. What do you think? What do you think about God's knowledge and free will? Some of you are a little frustrated that we spent so long on this, uh, taking a look at different positions, and a number of you have expressed your delight at getting to know what the options are for this series. So here's my question for you. Do you agree with open theism that the future is at least partly open, giving us free will? Do you agree with the Arminian idea of God's total knowledge of all future events while also agreeing that we have libertarian free will? Or do you agree with the Calvinist understanding of sovereignty that God not only knows the future, but decrees or determines who will be saved, limiting human free will. I'm going to put up a survey in the Restitutio Facebook group. And by the way, if you haven't joined yet, please join the Restitutio Facebook group. We do have uh, quite a number of people that like to comment on the website, and those comments are part of the permanent record. But the, the Facebook group has a lot more interaction and uh, shooting from the hip kind of comments, and it's really decentralized as well since anybody can post in it and anyone can comment. So I am going to put a survey out there. We did have an informal survey previously, but my question is, has anyone changed their mind or does anyone have any further ideas apart from these three that they would like to add to the survey, which would be interesting as well. So if you haven't uh, yet joined, why not join the Facebook group for Restitutio? You could just search for Restitutio. There's a Facebook page, and then I have a pinned post at the top of the Facebook page, which is the the group itself. And the group is where all the action happens, let me tell you. So uh, come on there and let your voice be heard. And if you have any thoughts on this episode in particular, episode 308, Challenging Calvinism, episode 308, Defending Calvinism with Sean Cole, please leave a comment or question on restitutio.org. Uh, just before closing out, I did want to once again mention that I put out a post at the beginning of the new year here, on January 1st, in fact, where I did some year-end review, and Anna Brown wrote in a comment on that. She said, I started listening to Restitutio this year, and what an enormous help it has been to my spiritual growth. Many Christians will not seriously engage with opposing ideas, but I aspire to your example, Sean, of kindly and respectfully engaging with ideas and opinions I do not yet call my own. The truth has nothing to fear. Thank you for offering such a complete and systematic overview in your theology class. It filled in the gaps for both my husband and myself, and we enjoyed it. Thank you also for helping us change our minds on baptism. Your podcast and your personal leadership were instrumental in that significant change for us. I look forward to Restitutio's 2020 with delight. God bless you and your work. Well, Anna, thank you so much for those kind words. I know that some folks are really uncomfortable when I give time to people who have beliefs that they disagree with, but I think this is so valuable because, first of all, 
in the pursuit of truth, it's incredibly helpful to know what the options are. And let's face it, you're just you're just hoping you're getting lucky if you want to know the, the truth on a particular issue and you don't even know what the options are. You're just hoping you're getting lucky that whoever taught you that truth was right. Secondly, we are sometimes wrong. I have been wrong, not just sometimes, many times in my life on a whole range of different subjects, but especially when it comes to theology, uh, that's the whole idea of restitutio. It's a restorationist mindset that's trying to peel back the layers of tradition to, to discover authentic Christianity, and then think about how do we live that out today faithfully in the 21st century. So sometimes we're wrong. So how are you, how you ever going to know if you're wrong about something? Well, guess what? You got to hear the opposing viewpoint or several opposing viewpoints in order to check your truth against somebody else's. And uh, ultimately, we want to get to God's truth, which is the absolute truth on the particular issue. And then thirdly, we need to be able to engage with views from other Christians. And hearing a good case for this or that belief will equip you to better understand, sympathize, and respond. And I think every one of those three is, is important when, when it comes to engaging with other people's views. You, you, you really have no business critiquing somebody else's view unless you even understand what it is they're saying. If you don't understand where they're coming from, if you can't put yourself in their shoes, I mean, you're just going to be—I mean, you can still be right, obviously, but you're going to be almost zero effective at changing that person's mind, persuading them to your your point of view. And if you and if you don't sympathize with them, they're, they're going to pick up on that. They're going to pick up on— any kind of judgmentalism, any kind of frustration or arrogance that you have. So you want to be able to sympathize with where someone's coming from. And then last of all, you need to be able to respond. You need to be able to build a case that is actually going to uh, really knock down their positive reasons for believing in whatever it is we're talking about here uh, that you're trying to convince them out of. So this is all part of, really, I believe, the future of Christianity. In the past, what we have seen over and over is authorities deciding what people believe and then either hiding alternatives, sequestering the books and the discussion in another language that people don't understand, or in the universities where most people couldn't afford to go, or by executing, actually using the government to execute Christians who disagree with the mainstream. So all of that, thankfully, in most places around the world now has gone away. And what we have instead is the age of information, and so that you can search for whatever you want. And now the problem is no longer access to alternate viewpoints. The problem is which alternate viewpoints are totally wacko, which are legitimate, which should I consider? And that's increasingly becoming the skill that you need to hone. Well, how are you going to hone that skill unless you engage, unless you train your mind to hear the reasons behind what somebody is saying rather than just hearing their emotion or their the flourish of their rhetoric or their engaging stories about this thing that happened and that thing that happened? I mean, we, we really need to in our period, train our minds to be able to really sift through what people are saying, right down to the reasons, and then take those reasons and measure them up like good Bereans against Scripture to see if they're really true, or if this is just somebody's speculation. A lot of times people put out speculation as if it is 
biblical doctrine and we all have to believe in it. That's something that we need to train ourselves to handle. So I'm excited about being part of this whole process of restoring Christianity. Thank you, Anna Brown, for writing in. Thank you, all those of you who have uh, downloaded in 2019. And I, too, am looking forward to 2020. We've got some exciting interviews uh, in the next few weeks. I just recorded two interviews today, and uh, I've got a whole bunch of stuff lined up, either recorded or scheduled. I've got a class or two that I'm looking to put out in 2020, and so I'm excited to get going. Actually, next week I'm going to put out two episodes. I'm so brimming with content. So I'll catch you next week actually Monday, and uh, that's going to be a special podcast announcement. I'll see you then, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.